1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this evening, technically not finishing the chapter because uh, the last couple of verses in some ways are transition verses from that which uh, Paul has been speaking on to that which he's going to. In all of Paul's books, uh, most of Paul's books, let's put it that way, in most of Paul's books, we see a twofold division. We see a section that tends to be introductory. We we might often say um, um, theological in nature where Paul is explaining some concepts as unto theology, as unto doctrine. And then we see a point in his book where his focus shifts from teaching about uh, theological concepts and introductory ideas to the application, to the, the real-world doctrinal application of what Paul has been speaking on. And we're going to see that shift between 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has mainly been speaking of the suffering that the Thessalonians have gone through, of their tremendous and godly response to that suffering, and of the nature of Paul's ministry, both in Thessalonica, and then as he had to leave Thessalonica, the nature of his ministry, uh, his desire for them, and then sending Timothy back to continue the ministry in Thessalonica. But as we transition into chapter 4, and specifically chapters 4 and 5, Paul is going to begin to get very practical. He's going to hit the nitty-gritty. And whenever we have a book that is like that, particularly we think of books like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, um, we we start to slow down a little bit because now we're talking about um, some topics that are perhaps a little more practical, perhaps a little more rich doctrinally, and so things are going to slow down. My wife was commenting the other day, uh, after last week, she said, wow, I uh, realized last week that we're in 1 Thessalonians 3 already. There's only five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, and we've just kind of blown right through it. And indeed, we have, but we will slow down uh, beginning next week. We'll start doing much smaller chunks as we uh, examine the, the particulars of all that Paul is asking the church to do. And let's review for just a moment again. I really want us to get this idea. We've been in kind of a, uh, you, we might say a mini-series in 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapters 2 and 3 as we've considered ministry. And remember in chapter 2, we, we talked about the motivation for ministry and the mindset for ministry and the battle of the ministry. Our motivation being the praise of Jesus Christ, our mindset being Christ alone. The battle, recognizing that we're not just fighting a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. We talked about all of those things. And then last week, we might say in some ways that was almost the, the climax of our teaching as we considered the dangers of the ministry. It was also the, the height of, we might say, um, the disappointment or the, uh, <laughs> I talk about the climax, but we also could say that that's a bit of, it's kind of the low point, right? It's the point that we don't want to think about. It's the point where we recognize that we lose some people along the way. It's the point that we recognize that no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, there are going to be people that aren't interested in what we have to say. There are going to be people that get this close but never quite get all the way. And it's not for lack of effort and it's not for lack of prayer, but it's because they have a free will. And as Revelation chapter two or 3, as my wife and I were, were talking about the church of Laodicea this morning as we were quoting it in Sunday school, 
Jesus said to that church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And even though Jesus Christ is standing at that door and knocking, He's not going to break that door down. He'll knock and He'll knock and He'll knock, but He's not going to take the hinges off the door. He's not going to shove a crowbar in and break the, the door jam. He's going to wait until that door is opened in some form or fashion. And so we talked about the casualties, the dangers of the ministry. But today I want to brighten our spirits a little bit. I told you this week would perhaps be, be that bright point in our consideration. You see the title there, Ministries, Victory. When a soldier is on the battlefield, when he's tired, perhaps injured from the fighting, the things he's had to endure, the things he's seen, the struggles he's gone through, the things he's been without, his family is at home, he hasn't seen them, all of his loved ones, perhaps his career, all of the things he's left behind, the soldier consoles himself in many ways. And as I've talked to soldiers in the past, I've found that one of the ways in which a soldier consoles himself is he knows that what he's doing matters. That he's doing something for the good of those who are back home. He is, he is shouldering a burden so that those back home don't have to shoulder it. I spent many years interacting with police officers. And as I was interacting with police officers and we would beat those streets, I would work the graveyard shift and we would be driving around those dark streets at night and it's not a pleasant shift. You're basically living off of coffee and uh, the men, you talk to them and they're trying to sleep during the day and they're uh, having difficulty sometimes doing that. They're on opposite schedules from their families. Don't get to see them as much as they would like. And as we consider that position Oftentimes, you ask the police officers, well, why do you do what you do? What consoles you in your sacrifice? And they will tell you that it's the thoughts that families can sleep well knowing that He is out there seeking to keep them safe. When a woman is great with child and she's going through all of the suffering that uh, um, comes with, with um, pregnancy, at least with my wife, one of the things that greatly consoled her was the fact that she was bearing a child and that child would come into this world and by God's grace, that child would live and would grow and would become a usable vessel for our Lord. And, and there's something within us that needs to know that our efforts and our sacrifices count, isn't there? The sacrifices of parenthood the sacrifices of our position and the sacrifices of our ministry. Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 3 reflect the joy in his own heart at the fruit of the ministry, the victory of the ministry. And by God's grace, these words will become a beacon of hope in your heart as well that reminds you that the souls of men are worth the fight, the sacrifices, the pain in whatever capacity you are fighting that battle. 
and you might even come to the point, as many a servant of God has, where you perceive the sacrifices of the minister of God as the only sacrifices that are truly worth making in this life, as the only sacrifices that really have um, the particular bearings that are worth um, fighting for. We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a bit. So last time we were together, we saw the deep concern that Paul and Silas and Timothy had for the Thessalonian believers, which compelled them to send Timothy, and perhaps Silas as well, we can't really know on that uh, regard, back to the city in order to establish the church in the faith and to comfort the church concerning their faith. And in verse 6, Paul says this, we'll read through verse 11. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Timotheus brought Good tidings, Paul writes in verse 6. Tidings of strong faith. Tidings of genuine charity. Tidings of a careful remembrance of Paul's teachings. Tidings of love for Paul and for those who co-labored with Paul in the ministry. And the impact of this discovery upon Paul and his companions, upon their spirits, upon their, um, their emotions cannot be overstated. Paul was perhaps imagining what the reunion uh, of Timothy with these Thessalonians might have been like. Perhaps Paul or Timothy would have returned to the city to find a very small group of people worn, haggard, and very angry. These people have watched as Paul and his companions, we might say, stirred up the hornet's nest in Thessalonica got them to follow along and then abandoned them when things got tough and left their followers to take the heat. That's not what happened, but could you imagine a group of people, Paul and Silas and Timothy come into the city, they teach in the synagogues, they get people angry, they find followers, they begin to teach these followers, now people are really angry, and then as people get really, really angry and things become really, really dangerous... They leave and they kind of leave the people who had followed them to clean up the mess. Now we know that that's not what happened. But that was Paul's concern. That somehow wires got crossed and these people might have actually had that idea, had that conception of them. That when Paul or Timothy or Silas returned to Thessalonica, they may not receive a warm welcome. They may go to this, this group of people if the group of people is even still there and they might see nothing but angry faces that say, wait a minute, we don't want you here. You haven't been going through what we are going through. Get out of here. No, we're not interested in what Paul had to say. 
Everything he had to say was invalidated by the suffering that we've been through. We're not interested any longer. And that was perhaps a little bit of Paul's concern. These people had indeed been beaten and killed. And perhaps Paul thought that they had felt betrayed by these teachers who had told them of God's love, then watched them walk into the meat grinder, as it were. Perhaps Paul envisioned their deep offense, thinking if I ever see that Paul guy again, I'll give him a piece of my mind. Perhaps Paul even contemplated the possibility that they would return to find nothing left of the doctrine that they had preached, nothing left of the church that they had sought to found. That all of Paul's labor and prayer and efforts in the ministry in this city might have dissolved under the pressure, under the, the weight of the affliction that these believers had gone through. All of these things are feasible concerns considering the very unique situation of the church in Thessalonica. And we perhaps, I know I have, perhaps many of you can relate as well to men and women who have gone through that process of being alienated as they had heard promises, but maybe not been trained up as well. And so when the difficulties came, they had expectations that were not met, that were not fulfilled, and they became upset at God and at His Word. And it's not inherently God's fault, but it's likely the fault of of poor training or not enough training. It's not God's fault, but rather the circumstances were uh, heavily against them in favor. Paul was afraid of that. Paul was concerned about that. But instead of Paul's greatest fears being realized, where he would hear of nothing but spiritual casualties littering the streets of Thessalonica, we might say. Paul recounts what Timothy found when he went to the city of Thessalonica. And what he found was a group of men and women who had maintained their strong allegiance to the doctrine and the faith of Jesus Christ. These men and women were exercising their faith, enduring the hardships. In the midst of great persecution, they were exercising, exhibiting true charity toward their aggressors. When Jesus Christ commanded them to love their enemies and to to do good to them that would persecute and to pray for them that would, would despitefully use them, Timothy found that there. He saw great charity, not just faith, but charity among the believers. And while not the most important, perhaps the most comforting to Paul is that when they thought of Paul, they thought fondly of him. When Timotheus came back and said, yeah, you remember me? I was with Paul. They didn't say, oh, that guy. Don't be bringing that guy's name up here. They said, oh, our beloved brother, Paul. How is he doing We miss Him. We long for Him. Why isn't He with you? Where is He now? Is He well? Is He healthy? Where has He been? What have you guys been doing? We pray for you. We love you. We miss you. We want to see you again. 
They had not been soured to Paul by the abrupt way that he and his companions were forced to leave the city. They did not consider Paul's departure and abandonment of them. They did not see Paul as some hypocrite or charlatan who was unwilling to bear the consequences of his own preaching. They still loved Paul. They loved Silas. They loved Timothy. They rejoiced to see Timothy. They longed to see the others. And the word that Paul uses here to describe the news that Timothy brought to him in the Greek is the same word used regularly in the New Testament to speak of spreading the gospel. The Greek word, you see it there, is euangelizo. Paul called the message that Timothy brought back to him great News. The same word that when they would go out into a new city and they would say, I have, I have a gospel to tell you about. I need to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is this same word in its verb form. Paul said this was indeed very good news. The church had not seen Paul's departure as abandonment. They had not forsaken the teachings of Paul that he had prayerfully given unto them. And so, Paul says in verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. This is a very special verse. A very special verse to me. Take a look, if you would, in in verses 2 and 3. You'll have to look in your Bible when we don't have it on the screen. Paul says that he sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to, here it is, comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these, here's the next word, afflictions. For yourselves know that we were appointed, that we are appointed thereunto. Now back to verse 7. Therefore, brethren, we were, here it is, comforted over you in all our afflictions and distressed by your faith. All of the sudden, the ministry became the minister. All of the sudden, the encouragement that came to the heart of Paul because of the endurance, the faith, the love, and the charity of the Thessalonican believers had now comforted the same Greek word there, Paul and his companions in their affliction. The same Greek word there and in their distress as they were now contending with other believers. We have mentioned that likely Paul is writing this um, epistle from Corinth And as Paul contended with the Jews in Corinth and the men that were there, Paul says, in the difficulties that we're having right now, the testimony of your faith has brought tremendous encouragement. In other words, here's what happened. Paul sent Timothy to comfort the church in the midst of their affliction. Timothy saw the faith and charity of the church, their obedience to the Word of God, and when Timothy brought back the report, it became the comfort that Paul needed in the midst of his own affliction. There's something special there for us to remember. There's something very special there for we who are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells them in verse 8, 
For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. You know, true ministry is not an easy thing. And I speak of this to you. You say, well, pastor, we're not ministers. You are. You may not be a called preacher of the gospel, a pastor as it were, but in your own field, your own area of of influence, you are a minister. There is no born-again believer who has taken up the cross of Jesus Christ who is not also a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be it to your children, be it to your extended family, be it to your neighbors, be it to your co-workers, be it to your classmates, be it to your church. You are a minister. So as we've talked about these things, and I hope we've made that clear, don't just say, okay, pastor, you're preaching to yourself here. Because I'm not. I am, but not just to me. You know, when you minister to others, you're asked to bear their spiritual burdens, aren't you? When you open yourself up to help somebody in their spiritual life, you are assuming upon yourself some degree of their spiritual burdens. You are asked to invest in the spiritual lives of those with whom you interact with the full understanding that you do not have the power to decide whether or not they will accept anything that you've told them. You only have the power to tell them the truth and then to manifest the reality of that truth in the testimony in the way that you live your life. And you love them, not inherently because of their personality or their choices, You love them not inherently because you have things in common. You love them not because they're inherently lovable. You love them because they are a soul in need of the Savior. Or they are a believer who's on a journey to greater heights of spiritual joy, to a life of communion with Jesus Christ. And so you love them. And wherever there's love, there's vulnerability. True ministry is a vulnerable life. The tangible outcomes of our endeavors is what allows us to continue in them. When I work on my car, I am motivated by tangible results. If I'm under my car for three hours and after three hours I feel no closer to the solution than when I began, I get discouraged. When I run... I want to see that each step I take is closer to the finish line. I can't run on a treadmill. (laughs) I can't do it. I'm not going anywhere. I need to see tangible results. People need tangible results. Maybe you can run on a treadmill, but there are areas of your life where you know you need to see tangible results. It's a whole lot easier to clean a floor when you can look back and see the floor that's clean. It's a whole lot easier to mow the lawn when you can see the stripes of the part that's been done. It's a whole lot easier to do things when you can see Tangible results for your effort. Tangible results are an essential factor that drives human motivation and peace of mind. But as a minister of the gospel, you and I don't always necessarily see tangible results, do we? You work with your children. You pray for your children. You have good conversations with your children. But you're not seeing the results. I mean, you just, you, you think things might be happening, you pray that things are happening, but you're, you're, you don't always see, you can't get into their mind. 
You can't get into their heart. You don't know what decisions they're making. You don't know the reasons for the decisions they're making. We do our part in obedience to God. We teach and we serve and we encourage and we share and we love. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is working in unseen ways. He's working behind the scenes. He's convicting. He's encouraging. He's edifying. He's impacting. And you wonder if you are even making a difference. You wonder if your obedience to God is touching anyone but you. You wonder if when you do what's right among your family members and they just look at you and they roll their eyes or they look at you and you, they call you names or they give you a cold shoulder or they ignore you or whatever it is and you say, is any of this even mattering? Is any of it even making a difference? You labor seeking to rescue eternal souls from the unseen enemy and to train those souls into capable soldiers for Christ. You try to show your fellow sheep how to best follow the shepherd, but you can't force them to follow. And all the while, you are driven into continual service by the promises of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love them. You recognize that the spiritual joys of this life and the life to come cannot be measured by the world's measuring tools. You understand that the impact of your testimony and the impact of your witness in the world around you isn't inherently defined by whether or not people are seen to be agreeing with you or jump on your bandwagon or come to church when you invite them or even agree with you when you mention these things. And yet you know, you know because this verse tells us that there are things that are awaiting us that we cannot fathom, that the Lord is doing things even if we can't measure them. And you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and you read, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That the difficulties of this life, that the sacrifices of this life are not even worthy in their suffering to be compared with the joys and the glories of the life to come. And you go through this life and you make those sacrifices and you understand that everything that is done for God, regardless of whether it is perceived as success or failure in some sort of material way, only adds to the delights of our heavenly future. And you know that these heavenly promises are there and you understand that there's something special in the life to come to those that are faithful to Christ. You read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-12, through 12, Paul say, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal body. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Paul wrote that to the Corinthian believers, and this is what he said, we are dying for the ministry. We are beaten We are suffering. We are lacking. We are sacrificing. We are yielding. And the death that is working in us is working some life in you. And we're willing to manifest 
the death of ourselves so that the life of Jesus Christ can be manifest in us so that you can have the benefit of that life that you see that is Christ's life in us. That even though the trouble and the weariness and the persecution and the rejection of this life will come upon us, we are compelled by our love for God, by our love for those to whom we minister, strengthened by the joys of knowing that the seeds that we sow in the lives of others, even at the expense of ourselves, will redound in eternity to God's glory. And you know, with each one of these verses, I think of my children. Children don't understand the sacrifices that parents make for them, do they? I sure didn't. I'm only three years into being a father and I am, um, as I think back on my childhood now, I think back to all the sacrifices that my parents made. All the ways, all the things that they gave up to raise us and to raise us the way that, that uh, they did. And that's a ministry. They did it so that we would see Christ. They made sure we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek service, every week so that we would learn of Christ. They set standards in our lives so that we would learn of Christ. They yielded uh, many of the pleasures of this world because they needed to ensure that they could support us and provide for our future so that we could continue on for Christ. And my parents are still doing that today, and I see that more and more. And that's just one of many ministries that you and I as ministers have, where we sacrifice. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18, through For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed, day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we are reminded once again that we don't serve for anything that this life has to offer. That's not why we are ministers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't do what we do for men's applause, but God's. We talked about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-6. through We don't do what we do because we love it. We do what we do because we love God. We talked about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7-12. through Our inward man is renewed by the promises of a life to come and we look for the eternal riches that are promised as a result of our spiritual faithfulness in this life and we rejoice that we have a spiritual life that is to come and then we do what Jude verse 22 tells us to do which is for some having compassion making a difference and others saving with fear pulling them out of the fire hating even the garment spotted by the flesh we approach certain men with compassion that doesn't mean that we're making a difference in their lives it means that we have compassion showing a distinction between truth and error that's what that word means. It doesn't mean go into somebody's life and make a difference today. It should make a difference when we show distinction. But that's what Jude is saying. Jude is saying that when we come into their, a person's life, we have compassion on them as we show the difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and one who is not. 
and others, it's not enough simply to show a distinction. We need to look at them in the eye and we need to say, do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? We need to look that believer in the eye and say, faithful are the wounds of a friend, fellow brother or sister in Christ, and you are not doing right by God's Word. We need to pull people out of the fire, hating even the garment that might be spotted by any aspect of the flesh. We call men away from their sin earnestly, warning them of judgment that is to come. And so, through all of these aspects, all of these verses, we understand that your labor in the ministry, whatever it is, your raising of your children unto God, your speaking to your co-workers, your speaking to your family members, your serving in the capacity at this church, set up, tear down, piano playing, cleaning, moving the slides along on, uh, as I'm preaching. All of these little ministries, we know from all the verses that we just saw that your reward for all of these things as you do it for the right reasons is in heaven. And we know that. But for all that, we're still human, right? We still want to see some fruit for our effort. We still long to really see hearts and lives changed by the power of God in a tangible and noticeable way. We still look for physical and tangible results. And the testimony of Paul's ministry was that indeed, though he didn't inherently need the tangible results, though he didn't need the overt manifestations of ministry success, when they came, they were to him the greatest of encouragements and the greatest of motivators. And for the minister of the gospel, when we see our mission field, choose God. It's like being given a canteen of cool water as we walk through the desert on our journey home. When we see our children make right decisions for God, what a blessing that is. Just yesterday, one of my daughters had done something wrong. We rebuked her for it. And it was about 30 minutes later, she went up to mom, who she had offended. She looked at mom and she said, Mom, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she didn't have to be told to go say sorry to mom. And she didn't have to be prodded to reconcile. She did it on her own. And that was a glimmer of hope for my wife and I that tells us that something is sticking when it feels like nothing is. And the reminder as we take this journey, and it's a very important, important reminder, is that serving God, serving Christ, ministering in Christ's name is victorious that people's hearts are changed in ways that you could never understand. That as you do your part, God is doing His part as well. That as we open our eyes to the victories that surround us, as we have faith that there are victories being won, we are enlivened in our own battles. So much so that the ministry becomes the minister as the minister sees the ministry stand fast in the Lord. And all of this reminds us what it's truly about. It's about God. Paul said in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? 
for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Literally, Paul says here, how can we repay God in our thanksgiving for the joy that he has given to us when we saw your obedience and love to God? And we give thanks to God and we joy in God's goodness and we rejoice in God's power and we are reminded that God is a God of love and that we are beneficiaries of God's love and that it is the least that we can do to give to others of that which God has given to us so freely. And we are spurred on to minister all the more. The joy that comes from the obedience of one is greater than the pain that comes from the refusal of the many. But it didn't just bring joy. It reinvigorated Paul in his ministry. Paul says in verse 10 and 11 that night and day he prayed exceedingly that they might see the faces of the Thessalonians and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith, he says. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Paul began praying more earnestly, night and day exceedingly. The word literally uh, meaning that he begged God. He petitioned God earnestly to see them again. As we experience the joys of the spiritual victory in the ministry, we find ourselves wanting to serve God all the more and serving God better. Spiritual victory satisfies, but it also motivates. You know, we are all ministers in some capacity. We've talked about it. Ministers to our children, to our families, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our fellow believers. You make a choice every day how much you're going to minister, how much you're going to contend for truth, how much you're going to study to prepare yourself for the days when ministry comes. Strengthening believers, winning the loss to Christ. And as you make these choices, you perhaps count the cost. You wonder if you're doing anyone any good. If any of this is really worth anything. If the battle you fight for Christ and the casualties you see all around you are worth remaining in the battle. Perhaps you're tired. Perhaps you've already given up or given in. God's Word is a reminder to us today that the battles are worth it. That the victories are being won and that your efforts do matter. Maybe as you're sitting there today, you aren't really in the battle. You aren't living a clear testimony for Christ. If someone came into your house or heard the way that you talked in private, or if they could see your thoughts or your actions when no one was looking, they would never know you to even be a Christian. Maybe you've never known the rapture of seeing a person with whom you are interacting with take definitive steps toward obedience to God. Well, it's time to get into the fight, Christian. It's time to be what God has saved you to be. It's time to become an ambassador for your heavenly home. I leave you as we close with a story. It's a personal story. The day I was ordained, which was nearly two years ago, it will be two years ago in April, Praymans were there. On the day I was ordained, I told you in my testimony about the young man who, through his issues, brought me to my knees before God. His name was Rick. Rick was a freshman. I was a sophomore. I was the leader of my dorm room. 
He was a freshman that year. He was a bit older than I was, but he was a freshman. He was from New York. He was socially abrasive. He didn't understand how to clean himself or how to clean the things that were his. He was loud, kind of obnoxious, self-focused, very proud. And it was my job as the leader of the room to keep him in line. Only the problem was I was trying to get him to do things that I really had no interest in doing myself, obeying rules, those sorts of things. And I came to the realization one day that if I'm going to ask others to do right, I better be doing right too. And I got right with God and that was the first step in the Lord calling me to ministry. And I use Rick as an example. Two years ago, I had no idea what happened to Rick. I knew that he had become a truck driver and he was going across the nation. I had heard from him once several years later. Uh, He had called me when he was going through Colorado, but at the time I was in China on a missions trip, so I didn't get the call until he was well, well on his way again. It was about three months ago. I got a communication from Rick. And Rick told me that my interaction with him in the, in the two semesters that he was there, he left after that year. My interaction with him had changed his life. That every time he stopped wanting to serve the Lord, he remembered this guy in college who wanted to do what was right. And we opened up communication again. And he said, you know, I'm not in a great place right now spiritually and I really need help. And I said, well, Rick, why don't we have Bible study? So we started doing a Bible study on Friday nights over the phone. And as we talked, he kept mentioning how much of an impact I had had on his life. I wasn't trying to minister. I wasn't attempting to do anything ministry-oriented. you know what I was doing? I was trying to do what was right. And he saw that. And it had an impact. It's been nine years now since that year. He still remembers it. And that was a little bit of a cool canteen of water on the parched desert of the ministry journey for me. And you know, it may be that right now you're in that desert time. It might be that you right now are ministering and no one's noticing and you're not seeing any fruit and things just aren't going as as you would want them to or expect them to. It was nine years later that I found out that I had had an impact on one young man for no other reason than that I did what was right. And it may just be that you are doing the same thing. That you are having impacts in ways that you cannot fathom. Not inherently because you're directing uh, Bible studies and, and, and leading small groups. 
but because you're doing what's right. But because you're sticking to the stuff. And you might just find one day a little note or you might get a phone call and you might get that cool water on your own journey that reminds you of what I'm telling you tonight and I'm begging you to take by faith that ministry is worth it because it is victorious, because it is of God and what God is doing will get done. Let's close in prayer.